Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Christian Union. If you're here for the first time, you've come on a very interesting day because you've arrived at the day where we do one of the most controversial chapters in the whole of the Bible that has been disputed for over a millennium, pun intended, um, but not planned, so you don't have to laugh at that one. Um, And it's going to be really, really tricky for us to understand. Uh, So I think before we jump into the talk itself, I think we should pray. So will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you give us your word to edify and enrich us, to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus, and to enable us to continue in him until he returns. I pray today that you'll give us insight and clarity into what you have to say in this chapter, and that we will leave more like Jesus and holding more tightly to him. We ask that in his name. Amen. Amen. Um, If you've got your outlines, your Bibles, keep them open. We're going to be in the passage quite a lot today. Uh, I want to begin with the observation that the story of the Bible is a story of how God puts down a rebellion. Now, some people want to say, oh, no, that can't be right, Matt. The Bible is a story of salvation. And I want to say that that is true, but it's not the whole picture. You see, when God created the world, he created it in a state of peace. And that's because when he made it, everything that he made, both in heaven and on earth, was living willingly under his rule. And so enjoyed his blessing. But we know the story, Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world and everything goes to chaos. Uh, The world enters a state of rebellion. And instead of one unified creation under God's good rule, the world shatters into a million different parts, all trying to live life as their own rebel kingdoms. Without reference to God, who is our creator, sustainer and ruler. And so really, the whole Bible is a story about how God deals with his rebellious creation and how he'll bring it back under the rule of his son, Jesus Christ. That will involve salvation, uh, particularly as rebels repent uh, and seek forgiveness and come back under the rule of God. But it must also involve the defeat of those who remain in rebellion against him. And that's where Revelation 20 becomes really significant for us. Because this is the end of the Bible, the third last chapter of the Bible, and it records for us the final moment in the story where the last enemies of God are finally and definitively defeated. Now the chapter there has three sections. In verses 1 to 6 we see a rebellion constrained. In verses 7 to 10 we see a rebellion ended. And then in verses 11 to 15 we see the rebels judged. Uh, But because the millennium, this magical thousand-year period that everyone has question marks about, is in that first section, we're going to spend most of our time there, but I want to flag that early. Don't mistake the amount of time that we spend on things for the emphasis of the passage. All three of those things have something to say to us that we need to hear uh, as Christians. Uh, So that's where we're heading. It'll be in your outline. But before we get into the text itself, I thought it might be appropriate just to step back a bit and outline some principles for understanding the book of Revelation. Because there are some common errors that people make time and time again, that if we're aware of them, we can avoid them and avoid a whole world of trouble. Now, some of you might have come across these as we've done Revelation at the CU, uh, but repetition is golden. So let's do it. Three principles for you. First principle, and this is the main one, pay attention to genre. And my guess is that when you read Harry Potter in high school or primary school, you didn't conclude that Voldemort existed and that he was out there at large somewhere terrorising us muggles, right? And the reason that you didn't make that conclusion is because you knew that you were reading fiction. It's a story. 
Now, the Bible, it's not fiction, but it's not monochrome. It has narrative, it has poetry, it has letters. If you go to the book of Leviticus, it's an instruction manual, right? So it's got everything in there. And so to read the Bible well, you need to read it according to what it is. Now, Revelation, it sits in this weird sort of space where there aren't many books in its category. It's what's called apocalyptic literature. Heard the word apocalypse, you know, where we kind of throw that to the end times. Apocalypse just means revelation. So we get the term revelation. It's Jesus's apocalypse to his people, his revelation. And one of the chief characteristics of apocalyptic literature is it just turns the volume up to like 15. Uh, and it takes vivid imagery, usually from the Old Testament, particularly if it's in the New Testament like Revelation, and it uses that imagery and those symbols to represent God's perspective on our reality, past, present, and future. And so when we read Revelation, we need to read it according to its genre. And that has one particular upshot. It means that literal interpretations of the events and the symbols, so the four horsemen, the mark of the beast, or whatever it is, if you're curious about those, you can go back to the CU archive and have a listen to those talks. Literal interpretations are usually wrong. Uh, in fact, they're almost always unhelpful pastorally, and so that's just something to be aware of. So that's the first principle, read according to genre. Second principle, we need to let the clearer parts of Scripture inform the less clear parts of Scripture. Now, we believe as Christians that the Bible has one author, and that is God. And therefore, we believe that the Bible won't contradict itself. And instead, we would expect, rightly, that it will present a single, coherent and consistent message. And so what that means, and this is really good, is that when we find things in the Bible that are really hard to understand, Revelation 20, 1 Peter 3, some of those really curly passages, we can go to those parts in Scripture that are clearer to direct and constrain and rule out options for the thing that we're reading that is less clear. Uh, and we do this at small groups on campus all the time, right? We'll go to our small group, it might be in Colossians, maybe it's Exodus, wherever it is that you're doing it, and, and somebody's like, what does that mean? And somebody will go, oh, I think it means this. But then somebody else, if they're brave enough, because the person's already been brave enough to make a suggestion, other person comes in and is also brave and says, actually, that's a really good suggestion, but because of what the Bible says here, I don't think it can mean that. And the third person goes, yeah, yeah, so if that's not the case, then maybe it's this. And what you're actually doing is you're letting the whole of the Scripture help you interpret a part of the Scripture, and together as a community, you move closer to the truth. And so we let the clearer inform the less clear. So that's two principles, final and third principle. And this is the one that we need significantly for today's passage. Humility. There is a reason that this passage is so disputed. It is incredibly complex. And you need a whole host of like exegetical skills and biblical theology and a knowledge of how the Bible holds together and then systematic theology. And, and there's just so many things wrapping around it that not one person could possibly hold the whole thing in their head and go, yes, this is exactly how it clicks. And so what that means is that whatever conclusions we reach today about what this chapter means... They need to be clothed in a humility that says, you know what, I might be wrong. And I think there's a common error here for Christians for this particular passage. Uh, because often what I see is a certain rigid dogmatism that says, if you don't believe my particular interpretation, then you obviously don't believe the Bible, and I'm not sure that your faith is even real. And I just want to say straight up, that is profoundly unhelpful. What matters is that you believe what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus, that he saved you, that he is now reigning in heaven, that one day he will come and return to judge and establish his rule on the earth. The historical particulars of how that actually happens, they're of secondary importance. 
Not unimportant, they are important, that's why we're looking at chapters like Revelation 20, but it's an area where we need to hold to our conclusions with humility. So that's the third and final principle. And so with those things in our toolkit, let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to look at the first section, verses 1 to 6, a rebellion constrained. Uh, We're going to do a lot of work here because this is where the millennium is, uh, but it will be worth it. So let's have a look. Uh, Get the Bibles out in front of you, chapter 20, verse 1. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to establish a timeline of events. So let's have a look at verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So this is our first point on the timeline. Um, Satan is bound, and that kicks off the beginning of the thousand-year period. Let's see how we can build on this. Let's keep reading verse 3. Uh, he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. Okay, cool. So during that thousand-year period, Satan remains bound. And we see that the effect of that binding is that he can no longer deceive the nations. Cool. Let's keep reading. This is the end of verse 3. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So another point for our timeline. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. Uh, And so that's kind of where we're getting there. But then we see some more things. Look at verse 4. John sees something different. He sees thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So two more points for our timeline. Uh, At the beginning of the thousand years, we see beheaded or martyred believers are resurrected. And then for that thousand year period, they reign with Jesus. So, verse 7, we'll keep going. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. We've already seen that. Then verse 8, and he will go out to deceive the nations in the corner of the earth, four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves. So after Satan is released, he'll go out and he'll deceive the nations and he'll gather them for battle against God's people. But then have a look at what happens, middle of verse 9. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. We saw that in chapter 19 last week. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what do we see right at the end of that short period? Satan, his minions, his armies, they're defeated. One final thing for our timeline, and we see it in verse 11 to 15, and that's the final judgment, so I'll throw that up there in the corner. Uh, What do we see there? Well, we see earth and the heavens flee away, so we have decreation, and the dead, great and small, are brought before God to be judged. That's our timeline. What do we do with it? Well, the first thing to acknowledge is that that isn't actually a timeline. It's actually a sequence of events, right? It's sort of free-floating. It hasn't been anchored in history at any particular point. We could kind of just cut and paste it and plop it wherever we want. So so what we need to do um, is, insofar as we are able, we need to try and pin down some things in this sequence of events 
to help us understand and get traction for what this might be in our reality, in our history. Uh, and I want to suggest that there are probably two key points where we want to anchor the sequence of events, the beginning of the millennium and the end of the millennium. So if we knock those two things down, I think everything else tumbles out and starts to make a lot more sense. So I just want to kind of say straight up, I'm going to lay my cards out on the table. What I want to suggest to you is that the beginning of the millennium coincides with the first coming of Jesus, when he died, when he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And the end of the millennium coincides with the second coming of Jesus, when he will return suddenly like a thief to claim his people and judge the earth. Uh, and the way that we're going to show that that's the case is to hone in on a particular event that is conspicuously absent from this sequence of events. And that's the second coming of Jesus. Uh, if you remember last week, we're in chapter 19, Jesus bursts out of heaven and he defeats the beast of Revelation. And so we need to work out how chapter 19 relates to chapter 20, because in chapter 19, we have a clear representation of Jesus' second coming. And so what we need to do is work out the relationship, because usually what happens, and this is where people read Revelation, but not according to its genre, they'll read Revelation chronologically. They'll go, here's a vision, and there's a vision, there's a vision, there's a vision. And so this must happen before this, and this must happen before this. And so what they do is they read Revelation, they get to chapter 19, they see Jesus' second coming, he defeats the beast. Then the millennium happens, and they go, well, this must happen afterwards. So there's this period of history that happens after Jesus comes back and judges the world, where there's a thousand-year reign, it might be literal, it might be symbolic, whatever it is, that we need to kind of work out for world history. But what I want to suggest to you is that that's not the case. And that's not how you read Revelation. Revelation is a series of visions given to John that retell and describe the same events of history, but from different angles and different viewpoints. We looked at that last, last week, you remember, we thought of them as action replays. Um, from uh, sports games and, and those sorts of things. And the reason I think that there's a bunch of reasons, uh, but the main one and the one that concerns us is the battle that we saw in chapter 20 around verse 8. Because there's two battles. There's a battle in chapter 19 between Jesus and the beast, and there's a battle in chapter 20 between God and Satan. And I want to suggest that they're the same battle, and I'll show you why. Let's have a look at how they're described. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the battle in Revelation 19, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, you can actually get your eyes on this, but otherwise the screen's there. Uh, this is how the battle is described, or just before it. Uh, an angel calls out and says, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Now have a look at how the battle in chapter 20 is described. This is verse 8 and 9. Satan will go out to deceive the nations into the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people. Uh, and the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So Satan, he goes out, he deceives the nations. Uh, verse 9, fire comes down from heaven and they're devoured. And now here's where things get interesting. Okay? Gog and Magog there in chapter 20, verse 8 the only other substantial references to these two names we have in the Bible, other than Revelation 20, are in Ezekiel 39, Old Testament prophet. And what does that chapter describe? It describes God's final battle with the nations in rebellion who attack his people, who he defeats, and then rescues his people for time immemorium at the end of history. 
So let's have a look at how it's described in Ezekiel 39, end time history battle. He says this, On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops, and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds. So we're seeing some links to Revelation 19 there, and to the wild animals. Skip down to verse 6. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. That's uh, 39 verse 4. As we keep reading through the chapter, we hit verse 17. Uh, and we see this. God says to Ezekiel, uh, halfway through verse 17, call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble and come together to the great sacrifice I'm preparing for you, the great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh. You will eat flesh, the flesh of mighty men. You will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers. I can't even read the bottom. You can't either, but I think it's of every kind. And I think what this tells us is that the battle in Revelation 19 and the battle in Revelation 20 are the same battle. John is using the same source material to describe the same thing, but from different angles. And this is massive. Because if this is the case, then Jesus' second coming comes at a point when the battle has been fought and won. And that must mean it comes at the end of the millennium. Because that's when the battle is fought in Revelation 20. So, first of two markers, the end of the millennium, Jesus' second coming. The time when he comes to enforce God's final judgment. And that shouldn't surprise us, because that's what the rest of the New Testament indicates will happen. So that's the first marker. We know where it ends. What about where the millennium begins? That's our final question. Um, and the way that I want to answer that um, is to make two observations from our sequence of events. And this is where we're going to use the clearer parts of Scripture to help us make sense of the less clear parts of Scripture. From our sequence of events, what are the two things that happen at the beginning of the millennium? Well, one, Satan is bound. And the second is that Jesus starts reigning with his saints. And so what I want to know when I, when I see those things is where else in the New Testament am I told that those two things happen? Well, let's start with Jesus. He's the easy one. We could go to a whole bunch of places in the Bible for this. I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, and this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. It says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Now you see this in Romans 1, Philippians 2, Acts chapter 2. Jesus Christ starts reigning as God's king at the point that he is resurrected from the dead. What about Satan? When is he bound? Well, let's have a look at our chapter, Revelation 20. Uh, we get a hint in verse 3. Uh, we see that he's thrown into the abyss and it's for the purpose so that he will be kept from deceiving the nations anymore. That's the purpose of his binding. Now, I want to ask, what happens at the point when Jesus is raised to life again? A whole bunch of things happen, but one of the key ones is that God's salvation is made available to the nations. And if you know Matthew 28, the Great Commission, you'll know this. The resurrected Jesus, he comes up, and what does he say? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So there's the ruling language. Go, therefore... And make disciples of God's people, the Jews? No, he actually says, go and make disciples of all nations. 
And so one of the major surprises of the New Testament is that when God's Saviour comes, God's salvation isn't just offered exclusively to his people, the Jews, but it's, it's offered to the nations as well. They are no longer under the dominion of Satan outside the pale, but they too can come in and access God through the gospel. They're no longer deceived, no longer spiritually blind. They are able to come to the Lord for salvation and life. And what this means then, I think, is that Jesus' first coming is at the beginning of the millennium. So do you want to know when the millennium is? You're living in it right now. And you know what? That shouldn't surprise us because it confirms what clearer parts of the New Testament have already told us. You see, we Christians, we live in a time period which Scripture consistently refers to as the last days. A period between Jesus' first and his second coming. A period that begins at the point where Jesus dies and rises again, where he begins his reign as Christ, where his gospel goes out to the nations. And then ending at some unknowable point in the future where he will return to defeat Satan and judge the earth. So that's the millennium. And that's the millennium and the rebellion constrained. And what it does for us is that it sets the scene for what God will do in the future. Remember, he is ending all rebellion. And that means that he's not just going to bind Satan, but at some point he's going to come defeat, judge and condemn him. And so in our second section, verses 7 to 10, we see the rebellion ended. Now, I'm just going to say straight up, this is probably the most confusing section. Uh, if we've pinned down the sequence of events correctly, it seems to suggest that at the end of the millennium, at the very end of history, Satan will be allowed to deceive the world again in a way that he couldn't beforehand in the millennium, and to do so in such a way that Christianity is threatened in a way that it wasn't beforehand. Now, I think this is the part of Revelation that requires us to exercise the most humility, because frankly, we have no idea what this means or what it'll look like. Uh, but there are some things that we can work out based on some of the things that other parts of Scripture says. So, for example, multiple times in the New Testament Gospels and also in Revelation, uh, early on in Revelation, Jesus himself says that his second coming will be like a thief in the night. It'll come at a time that nobody knows and at a time that nobody can predict. People will be eating, they'll be drinking, they'll be marrying, they'll be given in marriage. Life will be going on as normal. And that's when Jesus will come. And so whatever this period of rebellion is that Satan has, it won't be of such obvious prominence that we'll see it coming. That we can you know, make a website and have a counter down to when Jesus will return. That's not going to be possible. In fact, it is even possible that this period of rebellion is happening even now. Uh, for example, if you're a Christian in Afghanistan or North Korea, those two countries that suffer the worst persecution for being a Christian, uh, it would certainly feel, certainly feel like Satan had been released and was just going to town on the church. In North Korea, you've got two options when they discover you're a Christian. You either go to a, a camp for life and do hard labour and probably die, or you just get the, the death sentence straight away. So it's really just death or delayed death. Uh, it's not a place that you want to be living but the reality is we just don't know. We don't know whether it's coming, we don't know whether it's happening, and so we have to be humble. And we have to hold loosely to any attempt to try and anchor and pin down this particular event <coughs> to history. And I think this is a helpful warning for us, isn't it? 
Because when it comes to Revelation chapter 20, we can get so preoccupied with the how of God's victory and just kind of come up with all sorts of cool diagrams you put up into a slideshow and just like here's an arrow there and there's an arrow and this happens and then all these things kind of roll down. And we get so obsessed with the how that we forget the what. Not how God is victorious, but the fact that he is victorious and that our great enemy will be swept away, thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, which is Revelation's symbol for hell. And that the one who led the world in rebellion against God, the one who is ultimately responsible for all that is wrong and evil in the world from the point in Genesis 3 when he deceived Adam and Eve all the way through to our time in history where he is blinding the minds of unbelievers, that he will be punished by God forever and ever. So that's the third section, second section, sorry. Third section, final section, verses 11 to 15. We see the rebels judged. We've seen uh, the rebellion constrained. We've seen the rebellion ended. Uh, It's finally done away with. Now the rebels have to be dealt with. And so verses 11 to 15, we see God's judgment of humanity. And nobody escapes. John sees God sitting on a great white throne, verse 11. And then in verse 12, he sees the dead, great and small, brought before the throne and books are opened. What are the books? Well, we see there at the end of verse 12, they are a record of everything that we have ever done. Just let that sink in for a moment, yeah? One day you will stand before God and he will open a book with your name on it. And it will contain every thought, every word, every deed that you have ever done. And he will use that information to declare you innocent or guilty. Raise your hand if you want to go first. And we see there in verse 15 that just like Satan, the rebel leader, those who rebelled with him will be thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible is a story of how God puts down a rebellion and no rebel will escape. And that is true, but it's not the whole picture. Because there's a second book at that judgment, which is why somebody raised their hand just before. It's like, I'll go first. Because they know what's coming. And we see it there at the end of verse 12. It's called the book of life. And if we read verse 15 in its entirety, it says this, anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And let me tell you, this is good news for us rebels. Because it tells us that there is a way to escape the judgment of God. And to not suffer the same fate as those who stay rebellious against him. How do you get your name in the book? Well, it's simple. We come to Christ. We come to him in repentance and faith, putting ourselves under his rule, renouncing our rebellious ways. We come to Christ before he comes for us to defeat Satan and to judge the earth. That's because the Bible isn't just a story of a rebellion put down. It's a story of salvation. And it communicates God's inevitable victory. But in doing so, it warns us and it invites us to lay down our arms and side with Jesus rather than Satan. Because God will be victorious and he will see to it that every rebel will receive their just deserts. So that's Revelation 20. A lot of work for something most of us already knew. And so it kind of makes you wonder, right, why would God even bother? 
I mean, why would he give us Revelation 20 if it's just going to tell us things that we already know from elsewhere in the Bible and it's just going to cause a whole bunch of divisions amongst Christians to the point where, you know, churches will break up over it and whole denominations will kind of do their own funky things off in their own little corners. What's the point? Why would God do this? And that's where the genre of Revelation is so important for us. Remember, Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature. It uses symbolism to uncover God's perspective on our reality. And because the visions of Revelation act as a series of replays on the same events but from different angles, then the thing that we need to ask is this. What new light does Revelation 20 shed on what we already know? Because we know Christ reigns, we know he's coming back to judge. So why this angle? Why this replay? And what Revelation 20 is doing here is it's showing us the events of the last days from the perspective of the spiritual Chapter 19, Jesus defeats the beast, the earthly manifestation of Satan. And now in chapter 20, we see God defeat Satan in the same battle, but from the perspective of the spiritual. And that means two things for us who live in the millennium, in the thousand-year period. First, it means that Satan is bound, even though it doesn't look like it. And then second, it means Jesus rules with his saints, even though it doesn't look like it. Because at this point, you've got to remember who John is writing to. He's not just kind of coming up with this cool movie script like Cloverfield 5 and he's just going to send it off to Hollywood and it's just going to be this weird, trippy thing. He's writing to seven churches in Asia who are experiencing profound pressure to abandon Jesus because of persecution, because of the seductions of the world. And he appreciates something that we appreciate from our own experience. To live as a Christian in a world that is in rebellion against God is exhausting and it's difficult. It means making consistent choices that will cost you friends, will cost you money, will cost you security, will cost you peace of mind. And so what John's readers needed to be reminded of and what we need to be reminded of is that even though being a Christian feels like being the scum of the earth and it's just dog hard, Christ is reigning and we are reigning with him, even though it doesn't look like it. And I presume that's what John means there in verse 4 of our passage when he sees the beheaded believers come to life and reign with Christ. Uh, We read Ephesians 1 before. Here's Ephesians chapter 2, the chapter that follows after. Saw what God did in Jesus. Let's see what he does in us. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. There's the first resurrection. It's spiritual. And then in verse 6, we see God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, the place where he has already put Jesus to reign and rule. And so to see this in Revelation 20 is so precious because it reminds us that as our world spirals out of control and hostility to Christianity in our city increases, our standing with Christ in heaven does not. Because the God who raised Jesus to life and seated him on the throne has done the same to us even now. And that gives us courage. That gives us an expectation of success. Because who is the one being who, out of anyone else, wants to see God's people crash and burn? Well, it's the one who surrounded his people in his city in Revelation 20. It's Satan, the chief rebel, the spirit who is at work in the hearts of disobedient, blinding the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And what does this passage tell us? He has been bound. Not absolutely, not in the sense that he's not active in the world, 
but in the sense that he can no longer deceive people when the gospel of Christ goes to the nations. And that means that our great purpose in life as Christians, which is to preach the gospel, which is to be heralds of his glorious grace, that purpose cannot be frustrated. Brothers and sisters, Satan loses. Even now he is bound. And whatever agency he has, it's because God allows it. And that gives us great confidence, doesn't it? Because our great enemy has been stripped powerless. And even though the world continues to rebel against Jesus, continues to rebel against his people, we know how it ends and that matters. History is not some great battle between God and Satan with the outcome unknown, with the outcome hanging in the balance. It's a period of trial for God's people, but where the outcome is assured and was never in doubt. So let me say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of today. Don't be afraid of tomorrow. Don't be afraid of the future. Instead, hold fast to the assurance that we see in Revelation 20. Christ reigns and we reign with him, even though it doesn't look like it. And Satan is bound and he can no longer frustrate the purposes of God, even though it doesn't look like it. And that he and every other rebel will one day be brought to justice. But we who hold fast to Jesus will be brought into eternal life.